Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette. I'm in Rockefeller Center. It is officially winter in New York City, so we were bundled up to get here, but it's nice and cozy in the studio, and I am so delighted to have an incredible woman to share with all of you today. Liz Elting is the person that you want to be thinking about when you are ready to dream big and take your next leap. She was served as the co-CEO of TransPerfect, the world's largest translation service provider, which she created out of her dorm room and ultimately sold for almost $400 million. She's written a book titled Dream Big and Win, translating passion into purpose and creating a billion dollar business. And we'll hear all about it after a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. Sitting across from me is an incredible woman who we are going to get to know a little bit more about today. Liz Elting, welcome to Claim Your Confidence. Thank you so much, Lydia. I'm so excited to be here. So we came to know one another in a really funny way, which I'd love to share with our listeners today. I was giving a speech for the Goldman Sachs Philanthropy Summit, and I'm sitting in this large auditorium. And to be totally honest, I had about three minutes left in the speech, and I finished my speech. I'd been talking a lot about charity auctioneering. And so I decided to really show the audience what a charity auction looked like. And I remember, and I'm sitting across from Liz, and I'll take her water, but I was sitting, I was standing at the podium, and I had a bottle of water that I had already taken a sip out of. And in order to really articulate the point that charity auctioneering is all about what the audience will do based on how they're feeling in that moment, and that's really what sales is about, let's be honest, I said to the audience, we're going to have a quick charity auction. And so I'm going to auction off this bottle of water. I've already had a sip. We're going to auction it off for whatever you guys are willing to pay for it. But what I need for you to do is give me the name of a nonprofit. So a guy yelled out a nonprofit and we started the auction. And it was interesting. We started, I think I was like, who's going to give me a dollar? And someone in the front row gave a dollar. And then I said something like, come on guys, this is Goldman. And then I think it went to $5 and then 10. And we were kind of eking along. (laughs) And finally, someone said something like $500. And then this incredible woman in the back says, $1,000. And I remember thinking, that's my kind of woman. (laughs) She gives $1,000 for a half empty bottle of water, all for nonprofit. And that is Liz. So Liz, start me off at the beginning. Were you always the woman who sat in the back of the room and gave that $1,000 bid? Were you confident as a child? Well, thank you so much for asking, Lydia. And when you were doing that, all I was thinking is, Boy, is she confident because she is up there. And what if nobody bids anything? What is she going to do? Drink but, the rest of the water. That's right. But she's in front of hundreds of people saying, I'll show you how it's done. Yeah. And then she got it done. And I just thought, wow, that is confidence. You're just putting yourself out there. And then it shows also the audience is cheering for you. Yeah. They're not going to let you down, which is a good thing for us to remember. But I absolutely loved when you did that. Oh, I was yeah. so wowed by that strategy. And I thought, okay, I'm going to keep that in mind <laughs> with all of all my events, everything I do. Yeah, the audience always wants you to succeed. It is a public speaking tip that I give all the time. Everybody's out there. Nobody wants a bad speaker. You don't have to endure a speech. So get out there and entertain them. That's right. And that's exactly what you always do. And certainly you were doing that that day. Yeah. So take me back to Liz as a child. Who were you when you were young? Well, okay. So I was very, you know, curious. I was very interested in people. I loved people, but 
I was painfully shy. Were you really? And I was, and I was quiet. I remember the notes, you know, on my report card in kindergarten, you know, that I loved learning, I loved reading, but I was painfully shy. So that was sort of how I started. I was living in Westchester, New York, Mm -hmm. in in Chappaqua. And then when I was eight, I was fortunate because we moved to Portugal. And Why did you move to Portugal? Eight. And um, great question. (laughs) So my dad had been in marketing first and then he was in advertising and he got the right to open Kentucky Fried Chicken in Portugal and the franchise. And this was in 1974. So back in the 70s. Well, right after we moved there, the Portuguese Communist Revolution broke out. So it was a crazy time to be in Portugal. And Unfortunately, we needed to move back after only a year because of what was going on. They were very anti-American, anti-business, anti-capitalism, but he did end up opening a few Italian restaurants and we came home. But the thing about living in Portugal, it made such an impact on me Mm. because first of all, I kind of, I came out of my shell. Mm. I loved speaking Portuguese. I felt like I was acting. I loved communicating with people from other cultures who were coming from, or that other culture, Mm -hmm. you know, coming from a different world. And then the other thing is I started studying languages when I was eight in third grade. When you were eight in Portuguese, I used to do a lot of work in Brazil. Portuguese is not an easy language. It's not like Spanish right. or French that yeah. seems to be a little bit more intuitive. I mean, Portuguese feels like its own thing, although you clearly didn't feel that way. Oh, well, thanks. Well, I, it helped tremendously that there I was in Portugal, because yeah. as we all know, by far the easiest, best way to learn a language is just throwing yourself into the culture. And in 1974, not a lot of people there spoke English. Yeah. So that was wonderful. And then at the same time, I learned French that year. So they taught Portuguese and French at my school. So that threw me into languages and I love them. Then when I was 10, we moved to Toronto and there I continued with the French Mm -hmm. because that is obviously the second language of Canada. And then in high school studied Latin and Spanish. Yeah. So by then it was four languages. Oh my God, Liz, this is amazing. I feel like you're picking these up the way that someone might pick up a Coke. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, I studied languages too, but I wasn't picking up three or four. I was struggling Uh, through one. uh, So I was struggling through math, (laughs) through other things. But clearly this was something that was being unlocked in your mind. I mean, your mind clearly understands and absorbs the ability to understand different languages all at the same time. It's incredible. Thank you. Well, I did love languages and I loved being, as I said, able to act, put on a show and then communicate with people from other cultures in their language. That's kind of what got me started. And then during college, I spent my junior year in Spain, best year of my life, Yeah. other than getting married and having kids, Uh of course, and then worked in Venezuela after college. And then when I was 21, came to New York City, and I've been here ever since. So you were in Venezuela, and then you came to New York, why, for a job? Shortly after graduating from college, I had an internship in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. In actually, it was the financial division of an all-Venezuelan company. I was the only American there. And this was just because you could rattle off in 15 different languages, whatever <laughs> you wanted at any given time. <laughs> well, I had loved my year in Spain. And actually, what ended up happening is I had wanted to return to Spain, but I was involved in a, a club called... ISEC, which is the French acronym for the International Association of Economics and Business Students, and you get matched with the country. And instead of Spain, I got Venezuela. So that's why I was there, because I I wanted a real job. You know, some people go back and they, whatever, they do other things. And I just thought to myself, 
I I want a real job. I, I'm, you know, I was very practical and very motivated. I thought I need to be in a company. And that's where I got matched, Venezuela, in a Venezuelan company. I read in an article where you talked about the fact that your parents really said to you, like, you need to work from an early age and you always had a job, right? You were always sort of a little bit of an entrepreneur, even in those early years. Yeah. You know, one of the things they did is they said, we don't want you to be financially dependent on anyone mm-hmm. but yourself, you know. Yeah. And of course, that meant a spouse, it, you know, a partner, my parents, my friends, anybody. Yeah. So that was instilled in me early on. And when I was 16, they actually stopped paying, I mean, for my clothes, and I love clothes, yeah. and my entertainment. So I really needed to start working. And so I did. It really is. I think it's wonderful to do with kids if you can and if they can work during that time. So yes, I had lots of jobs and love having jobs because that's how, you know, we we learn all the things we learn. It's so true. And I think the financially independent part is such a huge part of that as well. And it's amazing that your parents were telling you that as a woman in the 70s. I feel like that's something that we hear a lot more about now, but not as much even in the past couple of decades. It's so true. You're right. You're right. They were incredibly helpful in that way and many others. Yeah. So you left Venezuela and you went to New York. Yes. You came to New York, I should say. I came to New York because I thought, okay, I did the Venezuela thing and now I've got to get a real job. I was 21 and actually my plan was to go to Washington, D.C. because I had some friends there from college. I thought I'll find something international there. Mm -hmm. But I ended up finding out about a translation company. And at the time it was the largest in the world. It was about 90 people. And I ended up calling them up and saying, do you have any jobs available? Uh, And I was interested in sales. Mm. And they said, well, we don't have sales, but we have production. I said, okay, well, would I be able to perhaps get a job in production? And then if I get it, move over to sales. And they said, yes, that's possible. Fast forward three years. I ended up working at that company for three years. It was amazing. I loved the industry. I loved the culture of the company. I was first in production and then I moved over to sales. I thought, love this, but I think it can be done better. So what was it that wasn't being done well at that point? Like, what was the white space that you were seeing while you were there? Because I know that there are probably a lot of people who are listening right now who have an idea. And this is always where I find when I sit in this booth with the most amazing women, this is the question. There's something that keeps some people from taking that step. They see the white space. They're like, oh, that's an annoying pain point. But someone else will figure it out. What did it take for you to start moving into that and have the confidence to do it? Yeah. Well, in my case, part of why I did it was what happened was I went back to school after three years, went to business school, got my MBA from NYU. And I thought, okay, I'm at NYU. 70% of the students at the time went into finance. It was was the early 90s, Manhattan. It was the place to be. You know, it was about, you know, the Gordon Geckos of the world. It was a different time. And so I thought I had to try it. So I did very briefly after getting my MBA, try out finance. I ended up going to work at the proprietary trading division of a French bank. And I thought, okay, great. I'm combining finance with my love for that, which is international. Well, showed up and realized on the first day, I was the only woman. Oh, wow. And what yes. did that feel like? Because were you still confident at that point? You'd sort of lived 
You lived outside of this small shell that you grew up being painfully shy. You've been acting in 90 different languages, it seems like, <laughs> by this point. But when you walked in those doors, were you confident or did you walk in already feeling a little bit worried about what you were going into? Well, I was nervous because finance wasn't my thing. Mm. It's what I thought I should be doing. Right. And that's certainly one of the lessons I learned along the way. I thought it's practical. I just got my MBA in finance and international business from NYU. I have to use this degree. Right. So I went in there and I thought, huh, I don't know if this is naturally me. And now I'm the only woman. And that was weird because at Stern, where I went, it was 40% women. And that's what I was used to, you know, at NYU. So anyway, I didn't love that. And then, boy, that environment, it was not for me. In what way? Well, they were, they were screaming, you know, every expletive out there across the (laughs) office. They were, it was all about football and baseball. And actually, I, and I talk about this in my book, I'm a big baseball fan, but I just can't make it everything about what the Mets did and the Yankees did all day long. Yeah. But then the, the worst part was whenever the phone rang, they would yell, Liz, phone. Oh. (laughs) Because I was the woman. They're like, note taking, Liz. Yes. Birthday cake ordering, Liz. Oh yeah. Go to the supply closet. When I asked for more work, they said, well, you can walk around to all the guys and ask them what supplies they need and then check the supply closet after that and then place an order. I could do that, but that's not what I want to do. That's right. And it was that combined with my realizing I know I thought I should do finance, but my heart is not in finance. I don't want to get a finance job elsewhere because I left the translation industry and I'm not feeling the love here. Yeah. So I thought this is my moment. I did recognize a gap between a void between, you know, the white space between what was available and I mean, and what clients needed. So I thought, why not now? I was 26. I was used to living like a student yeah. without money. Dorm room. Totally. Yeah. Dorm room. <laughs> 200 know. square feet, maybe yes. a bathroom down the hall. Twin sure. bed. Yeah. Shared with my boyfriend. I mean, it was, it was bad, uh-huh. but I just thought, at least I love that industry. Yeah. And at the time, there were about 10,000 other translation companies out there. So it wasn't that we were the first people to do it. It was that they were started and run by translators who were incredibly talented linguists, but they were so busy translating, they couldn't scale their companies. So I thought, okay, well, I'm, I may know languages and love languages, but I'm not translator level. I mean, that's a whole other level. You need to be completely fluent. You need to have the technical knowledge in, in the field you're translating. So thought we will start this and, you know, as business people, and we will scale it and ideally grow it into the world's largest translation company. But sure, I was nervous, but I thought, if not now, when? I'm young, I'm technically single, even though, you know, I had my boyfriend. And and I thought, why not now? I'm used to being poor, I'm gonna go for it. <laughs> so what did that first day look like? Did you hang out a shingle or what were the <laughs> what are you doing to make this happen? This is this for me is always the point where I'm so curious about what it takes to go from the beginning yeah. to selling for almost four hundred million dollars. Like what what is that first year like? Are you realizing that this is working or are you just kind of struggling through oh, everything? Struggling. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's what people don't realize. It takes time. You yeah. need to be patient and keep working, working, working. And we what I do recommend is bootstrapping. I did not focus on getting funding. I did not come up with a business plan and and a deck and meet with investors. I mean, I didn't even know how to go about that. Yeah, I was like, was that intentional or did you even think that that well, was something? Yeah. It, number one, it, I didn't know how. Number mm-hmm. two, I didn't have money to live off of. I mean, a yeah. tiny amount in my savings account and that was it. So 
instead focused on sales, sales, sales. Every day, sales, sales, sales. Basically cold calling, Mm -hmm. making about 300 phone calls a day. And who are you calling? Who needs a translation service? Every company in the world. And focusing first and foremost on Fortune 100, 500, 1000, the big companies, because the big companies have the big jobs and they were doing global business. And then medium-sized companies, um, basically any company that could be doing global business. Mm -hmm. And it was every industry, everything from law firms to ad agencies to banks to to consumer products to everything. And what was your in? What was differentiating you from everyone else? Because that's really, at the end of the day, what people are paying yes. for, right? There, you've said that there are a thousand, hundred thousand yes. services. So yes. what was it? So the gap was, and this is what I noticed because, I, yeah, I think you asked me that and I did not answer. But at my other company, and this was the same with the competitors, they weren't fast enough. For example, a client would call up and say, I have a document that I need translated. It's 10 pages. How quickly can you do it? And I would have to say a week or the competitors would say a week. And I knew it could be done in a day or two if that's what the client needed. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure, the linguists would have to work faster and harder and Mm -hmm. I would need to get things done more quickly, but that's what they needed. So faster turnaround time for sure. And with that, quicker quote. When you called up the competition, sometimes it would take a day or two to get a quote. Clients didn't want to wait. Yeah. They wanted it in 15, on the spot, ideally, or if not, if it's a little more complicated, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. So that was key. So urgency, a real sense of urgency. Also quality, making sure we are delivering the top, top quality. Mm-hmm. And, and you're that, working with freelancers? Yeah. Freelancers, but through, I mean, translator, editor, proofreader on mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. because everybody needs to be inspected. And then over the years, we needed to refine that in a lot of ways, come up with our own old gold standard for own gold standard for testing linguists, et cetera. And then doing very technical work in every industry. Another thing is offices in every major city around the world, a real, you know, basically a local presence. Mm. So the goal was get a client in that city and then that client would make us open an office mm-hmm. and a one-stop shop, not just delivering in, in our case, it was Microsoft Word and WordPerfect, but like anything a client needed in a foreign language. So those are the types of things we did differently mm-hmm. back then. Within the first year, you said you've struggled the first year, but at what point were you like, wait a second, this is actually working and really working well? After about a month of intense phone calls, maybe two months. I mean, it took a long time. And this is hundreds of phone calls a day and sending out hundreds of letters. Now it would be emails or yes. LinkedIn messages. Yeah, or, or putting on Instagram. Or, yes, yeah, or, TikTok. yes, or social media, but yeah. in a big volume way. And I'm a big believer in it's a numbers game. Yeah. Don't be so picky. Is this the perfect person to send to? I know people do that all the time. And instead, I think just keep hitting everyone. It's a numbers game. Mm-hmm. And related to what you're saying is the first job probably came in after about two months. And I remember the first job, the came first in project, after project. Wow! And and that project was a tiny project. It was a three-page document mm-hmm. from English into Slovak for a small law firm, and I couldn't believe it. And I just said, "Yes, absolutely, uh, we can do it. You'll you have it on Tuesday." Slovak? No, <laughs> no, nope. that wasn't one of the languages you listed. No, nope, but we were working with freelancers, yeah. and that's how we did it. But what was really interesting, and I mentioned this in the book, but basically. I called her up and said, your your project is ready. Um, we'll deliver it. Because this was back in the day before email and it was a floppy disk. Oh my gosh. And she said- It's really amazing to think about that. I yeah. know, I know. And she said, oh, 
that's okay. You know, I'll be in the area and I'd love to check out your operation. I'm like, the operation? In your dorm room? In the dorm room. <laughs> so you're like, uh, get off the twin bed. Honey. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. I said, okay. And I thought, I'll just run down to the lobby, intercept her before she can see anything and uh, hand her over the documents. So that was the first project. Believe it or not, the second project, the same thing happened. And it was interesting. It was for General Media International, which was the owner of Penthouse Magazine, actually. But it was a, it was a business document, but it was a two-page document. That client literally got past the security guard, came up to our second floor <laughs> and knocked on the door. Oh my so, gosh. So yeah, it, the goal was after that to get out of that dorm room within six months yes. because that couldn't <laughs> happen anymore. But related to what you're saying is, so in the first six months, not a lot of projects, but there was one very important project that got us out of the dorm room, which was one page. Mm -hmm. English into Russian, and it was technical mining material. And we needed to get someone with his PhD in geology who had worked in these mines in Russia to do it well. That one page was a test. We didn't know it at the time. That turned into multiple projects, and those multiple projects turned into a multi-million dollar relationship. And I think that's such an important lesson because we thought at the time, God, these, these projects are few and far between, but one great project mm. leads to multiple projects, leads to a relationship. And from that, you get repeat business, you get referrals, you get raving fans, and you get multi-million dollar clients. So after six months, we got out of the dorm room. So it's interesting because we were talking about this as it pertains to book sales right before we started this podcast. Because as I said at the beginning, you have this incredible book called Dream Big and Win, which I love the title on every level. And we were talking about the importance of being on the ground and selling your own book. And you really just said it all there. And I truly believe that in this day and age, a lot of people miss the point that it is the work that leads to the big. It's never big things that just happen. It's really that one page document that you made happen. And as a result of that, you received so much more business. And I say this on every level, in anything you do, don't be discouraged if the one small thing doesn't lead to the biggest thing ever, because it's a numbers game over time. The more you do, the more you try, the harder you work, eventually all these things build up and ultimately it can be exactly what you're talking about, that huge project that comes your way. Absolutely, and it can take, I mean, in our case, it could take 500 or a thousand letters to get one even call. Yeah. Like that's how, <laughs> and then you hope you can convert that call to an actual small project. Yeah. So yes, it's exactly as you just said, Lydia. So for the small business owner, for the entrepreneur, what are some key lessons that you would like to impart that you can think back on that you are so glad you did? And maybe there are a couple that you're wishing that as you look back, you had changed. Sure. If they're just doing it on their own, perhaps they're not looking for funding. Yep. But I certainly meet a lot of entrepreneurs who are, and they think that's the key. And that's what's going to scale their business. But of course it's not. You know, I say funding is vanity, but profitable revenue is sanity. Yeah. So we bootstrapped, we did not go out for funding. And I'm a big believer in if you can avoid getting funding or going after funding, do it. Because you can spend a lot of time, could be a waste of time if ultimately you don't get profitable revenue. And then you're beholden to others. You have other owners, you have more partners to deal with. So I feel instead, just throw yourself into it. Don't overthink it. Just go for it and then focus on revenue. Sales is key. Sales yeah. is king. Sales and if king. you get that, that will take you to the next step. Another piece of advice I have is I think a lot of people do dream big, but then 
they don't come up with the goals and then the actions they need to do every day to meet those goals. Mm -hmm. It's about discipline. I have a quote from Warren Buffett in my book that says something like, the difference between the most successful people in the world and people who are more average is simply discipline. So I think that's super important. Something I would have done differently that I talk about in my book is I started the company with my boyfriend at the time Mm -hmm. and we were 50-50 business partners. We didn't have any money. So as a result, we didn't hire any accountant. We didn't hire any attorney and we just incorporated on our own. Well, what we really should have had, and this is what I tell every entrepreneur if they have a partner, Mm -hmm. is... Well, first of all, you want to make sure you are on the same page as your partner on the big things. But the other thing is make sure you have the proper paperwork. Mm. Make sure you have a proper shareholders agreement that defines roles, responsibilities, decision-making, dispute resolution, what happens in the event of death, disability, divorce, and buy-sell provision. So if you want to sell at one time and and he or she doesn't, then you have a way to resolve that and how the company will be valued. Because you need to put that on paper before there's something to fight over. And then the last thing is, I would avoid being 50-50 owners with no decision maker if you can, because that was definitely challenging for us over the years. Um, So those are some things that, you know, I I recommend and would do differently. It's amazing that you've said that because I do think so many people who are starting out today are like, wait, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) But you are really a perfect example of someone who started at the beginning, maybe not thinking that you would ultimately create this company, even if you were dreaming big. I mean, this must have been past your wildest expectations to have a company that's valued at hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And that is such a good point. I mean, I recently started a business in May and my husband and I worked together on the business. And so as we were sort of dealing with all of this, these are things that come up. These are questions that we have for each other and how this is all going to work. And it's such great advice. And so I know that there are so many people out there who are nodding, thinking, I'm going to put this on the checklist, the never ending, the never ending checklist of an entrepreneur, but those are very important points. So you have obviously had success with this at the very beginning. How quickly does it grow? How quickly do you realize that it's going to grow bigger than you could have ever dreamed? I mean, it took a long time. We really couldn't hire our first full-time paid employee for a few years into it, Mm -hmm. which you know, a lot of entrepreneurs don't want to wait for, but we went through a lot of turnover in the first few years. And I talk about that a lot in the book and mistakes I made mm-hmm. as far as who we hired and what I learned. But the the very first full-time employee, but then that person but turned I mean, over job, quickly. Not the job, the person. Oh, receptionist, yeah. because we worked so hard on getting people to call us back because it was, as I mentioned, it was cold call after cold call after cold call. And then Initially, I was answering the phone when the person called back, but we wanted to seem like more of a... Elevated. Yes, a big company with a team. Because believe me, I got questions like that. I remember calling from the dorm room and calling a major company and they said, so exactly how many people do you have? And trying to... (laughs) Hundreds. Just just don't get past security. (laughs) (laughs) They're just freelancers. But um, yes, but so it was someone to answer the phone and then input names into a spreadsheet so we could send out our information. Mm -hmm. So now it would probably be, you know, someone to answer the phone Mm -hmm. and then someone to do direct marketing, which might not be a mass mailing now, as we said, but another way because it was all about the sales in the yeah. beginning. so And really probably freeing yourself up to do the things that were becoming more important in the role too, right? Not the sort of day-to-day, which is just the inbound of calls coming back and having somebody to do the back end. Well, bit. all they would do is turn it over. So most of what they were doing was kind of clerical because mm-hmm. they would get the phone, but then they would turn it over to 
to me or my partner immediately for a quote, you know, so I yeah. could deal with the client and try to close them. But yeah, so that was it initially because it was just, again, it was all about pushing out what we were selling. Yeah. And that is the most important part in the early days mm -hmm. because running out of cash is the number one reason companies go out of business. The number right? one. Yes, it is. And you're not going to have cash if you don't have revenues. Yeah. So again, it's all about the sales. Mm -hmm. And Back then, it wasn't through networking. You know, I quote you in my book, by the okay. way, where you I say network. You. Or because, I, yes, because I've learned now it's so important. Back then, though, there was no, like, I think networking was less important in the early 90s. Now, I think it, it is so key. But anyway, the point was the clients were people I didn't know. And it was all about, it was a numbers game. So that's another thing you would recommend then to make sure that you are going out to as many people as possible to expand your network, to meet as many people as possible oh, if you are growing a business. Absolutely, because now it would be that in addition. And so, yes, you might need someone helping on the picking up the phone was one thing, but then the putting the names, mm -hmm. if you're getting big lists of names or finding people on the internet to push out to, but you in the meantime should be going to events and networking. Absolutely. A Absolutely. lot of people say to me in this day and age, because I do know a lot of people in New York, I've lived here for 25 years, and people will say to me, like, how do you know this person? And I'll always say, I know them through New York. Because yes. in my 20s, I worked in a job in the events department. And as a result of that, we received a lot of invitations to other events. And my boss at the time was getting married, and she ultimately was going to leave the company and have her first child. And she didn't want to go to every single event. But I was in my early 20s, so I would go sometimes, and this is New York City, so this is the kind of thing that happens, there would be three or four events in a night. And I would just hop around town with my friends and run into the same people over and over again. And those people over time, never forget this, people grow in their jobs, they become more senior, and you will too, if you are working or starting a company, like every year that evolves, everybody in that class is going up one class, they're getting a little more experience, their networks are expanding. And so now I feel like there's never an event I walk into in New York, where I don't know at least one person. And that to me is really the ultimate in networking. Like I can walk into a room in New York City in one of the largest cities with so much going on and feel like I will almost always run into one other person. And that's really just from putting myself out there. And it's not that you you don't have to be at an organized networking event. Just say yes to invitations when you can and extend your hand, bring business cards, never be afraid to meet people. I couldn't agree more. The thing that is so wonderful now is in the early 90s, because you're younger than I am, but there were very few events. I was always yeah. looking for them. And there were very few networking groups, women's groups. Now we have so many yeah. and we are so lucky. And yes, take advantage of all the events and all the networking groups and all the opportunities because they will definitely pay off. Yeah. So you alluded to this when we were talking before and you were giving us advice on how to start businesses. The end of your time with TransPerfect had a lot of complications, but you eventually sold and you left. And what was the next step after that? And what did that feel like after having literally created this company and then leaving and then on the other side of that? What does that feel like? Yes, it, it feels weird. Yeah, <laughs> it I'm feels sure. strange because it was my whole identity. I mean, sure, I was a mom yeah. and I loved being a mom and I still love being a mom. And I agree, it's the most important job we all have. But after 26 years of being CEO and yes, starting it from nothing and it, it becoming the largest in the industry, I felt um, very strange and I felt very bad leaving, packing up on my last day. Yeah. I remember what happened the next day, which was wonderful. I had an opportunity to be interviewed for a magazine, which was fun. But just in general, 
the weeks that followed, I remember thinking, oh my God, this is like, and the people listening to this won't be so familiar with it, but Fred Flintstone, when he left his job, and I remember him sitting on the park bench because he didn't want to go home. I was like, oh my God, what do, I felt like <laughs> that's next? me. That's me. That's me because it's like, I don't have a place that I need to be at by 8.30 on the dot every morning till six and all about all day, that particular thing. Now I need to figure it out. And I looked at buying a company. Mm -hmm. I looked at starting a new company and I, I really thought hard about all these things. And then I realized, wait a minute, I, I'm free to do what I have always wanted and never had time for. And that was one of the things was start my foundation. I mean, yeah. I did try to spend a little time with my kids because they were in high school and I didn't get to take maternity leave. Yeah. I didn't take maternity leave. There was a lot of, situ there were situations going on that made it impossible. So I visited some colleges with my kids. I went to some ball games with my boys. I have two boys who love sports. And then I started my foundation because I definitely saw over my years in business, all of the issues, um, certainly for women. Mm -hmm. I had experienced some myself. I saw the women at my company dealing with issues. And then I saw people outside my company. So I wanted to focus on women mm -hmm. and helping support and empower women. So that was one thing. And then the other was people from marginalized and diverse communities. I wanted to help those people. So started a foundation with the mission of helping support and empower women and people from marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. And so I've been doing that. And then I've actually gotten involved in a number of other things because sort of like as you're out there, meeting people, networking, you come across other causes and you're like, well, well, how can I not be involved in that? Whether it's cancer, yeah. heart disease, hunger, gun safety, and the list goes on. I've now tried to stop and narrow what I'm doing in order to make sure I'm making an impact. And obviously you, Lydia, know a tremendous amount about all this <laughs> because of being like the best auctioneer out there. So yes, it's and been rewarding. And then the last thing I've been doing is I realized as I would go out and speak about entrepreneurship and I would do it either entrepreneurs groups, women's groups, business schools, Columbia Business School, NYU Business School, Stanford, that I loved it. And I thought, well, why not write a book about it so yeah. I can just put it out there and tell some stories from my life where I, I learned about business and I learned about life. Yeah. So that's what I did. The book came out you know, the end of September and now I'm focusing on the book and, and selling and, the book and selling the book yeah, and absolutely. speaking about the book and, and I'm just having the best time with it. Oh, I'd love that. Well, it's such a great book. It is filled with so many amazing stories. And I think for anyone who is in a place right now where they are thinking that they want to do something big and needs inspiration, this book to me is exactly what that is. I love the practical tips that you give. I love that it's told through stories. As an author, that's the way I write too, because I think it's the easiest way for people to understand that it's not just me giving advice, it's me actually having lived through this. And I feel like you have such incredible lived experience to share with so many people. And I love your positive message throughout the book. So I would highly recommend it. Dream big and win, translating passion into purpose and creating a billion dollar business, which I think we can all agree is an aim that we all have. Joe too is nodding here behind <laughs> you. But I do think that that is everyone's goal. And I think the best part about this story is that you started in an NYU dorm room because how many people are out there right now in a box apartment or something with this idea that they can't escape and they know that there's an opportunity for something big to come out of it. So you are living proof, Liz. Oh, well, thank you. And, and as far as that, if people are in that situation, 
I think there's no better time to do it than when you're young mm -hmm. and possibly single and yeah. don't have kids because you have the time. You yeah. don't have the financial commitments. Yeah. You can throw yourself into it and just, you live on very little. You don't need a lot. You yeah. just, you, you throw yourself into the company and that is the time. And, you know, I would just go for it because that's how we can create the environment we want in the workplace with our own company. And yeah. it's most likely doing something we love. And that's what it's all about. And I think it's so exciting to do it. You go through some tough days, but it is so worth it. It pays off. And I just encourage everyone to not overthink it, you know, take the risk, be bold and do it. So Liz, where can we find you now that we know we're all going to get your book? Where can we find you to follow along with this messaging and, and frankly, follow along with your journey? Oh, thank you. Well, I have a website, lizelting.com. And my foundation has a website, elizabetheltingfoundation.org. And then I'm on social media, yeah. the major platforms. And then the book is on Amazon and any other online retailer as well. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on Claim Your Confidence and sharing your story. And I always like to give our listeners a question at the end. Do you have a big dream? And if so, why don't you write it in the comments on Instagram for me or for Liz and tell us what that big dream is? Because sometimes you just have to put it out in the world to make it happen. And I know we'll both encourage you if you wanna do it. And before I wrap up this podcast, I also wanna share some really exciting news. I wanna give you guys a teaser for season two. As you guys know, I have two brothers and a really strong father who've had a huge influence over the course of my life, as has my mother and my sister. One thing I know, having grown up with that family dynamic, is that women do not have the corner on insecurity, and we're not the only ones who struggle with confidence. And so I thought it might be fun to mix up season two a little bit and invite one of my really good guy friends to kick off the season in order to talk a little bit about the confidence journey. Season two, which starts at the beginning of February, kicks off with Henrik Lundqvist. He was the goalie for the New York Rangers. He is an incredible man. But in addition to that, he was at the top of his game when he found out that his heart condition was never going to allow him to play hockey again. So I have a million questions I want to ask him. I know that you guys are going to really enjoy this. And I cannot wait to introduce a whole new series of guests as we embark on season two of Claim Your Confidence. I am Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. Tune in again next Tuesday where we have another fantastic guest. Liz, thank you again for being here today. Thanks so much, Lydia. Love talking to you.